0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell from Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we conclude our series on heaven, and we're going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 55, as Dr. Newfeld teaches, Going On for Eternity.
1: When Kathy and I were getting close to our wedding day, we had a conversation about what should be the theme of our wedding, and for that matter, what should be the theme of our life together as husband and wife? We could think of no better verse than Micah 4, verse 5. Though all the peoples walk each in the name of his gods, As for us, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. At the time, we both felt so strongly that we should choose that verse, and my entire attention was focused on the matter that Kathy and I would build our life together and whatever family that God would give us on the foundation of walking in the name of Yahweh our God. But as time has gone forward, I've been thinking about the words forever and ever. See, that's not to say that I expect to be married to Kathy in eternity. Jesus was quite clear on that matter. Matthew 22, verse 30, Jesus said, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Marriage is a temporary matter designed only for this life here. Now, what I had in mind is that for both Kathy and I, that we will walk in the name of the Lord, the God of the Bible, forever. I want some partnership with her in the glory of Christ in eternity. What we committed our lives to will never cease. As I say that, I'm reminded of a conversation that I had with my father as he lay on his deathbed. We were talking about heaven, and he was also expressing his love for me. In fact, our conversation ranged over a number of topics. At one time, he told me that he would love to take one more hike in the mountains. Dad just loved the mountains of western British Columbia, and I said to him, Dad, in the world to come, I want to hike the mountains with you. And he smiled reason I mention my wedding vows and the deathbed of my father is because I know the promises God has made to me are altogether enduring forever and ever. Nothing of importance is lost to the believer in death. Can I say that again? Nothing of importance is lost to the believer in death. Not sure of that? Let's divide this message into two sections. First, let's talk about the things that are not lost. Then let's talk about the things that are definitely lost in our death. So, number one, let's remember the things that death cannot take away from the believer. Well, what are those things? Well, death cannot take away your essential humanity. Job said so in Job 19, verse 26, And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. We've talked about the glorious biblical truth that Christ will raise our bodies and that our resurrection body will be like Christ's resurrection body. Indeed we will forever have our body only that it will be an imperishable body but there is more essential to our human experience is the image of god in us yes this includes our ability to think and reason to feel and experience the full range of human emotions to enjoy friendships and to have memories you know i'm often asked questions about heaven will we remember our life on earth I've often responded by saying that heaven is not like the belief in reincarnation, that you come back and you just can't remember your past life. Rather, memories are a part of our humanity and give the importance of continuity. How, for instance, are we to worship Christ who died for us when we can't remember what he died for? Some people are troubled by that, wondering whether our memories of our sins and failures should trouble or shame us in heaven. I think quite the opposite. Without our minds being clouded by sin, we will remember with redeemed thinking. Whenever we think of past sins while on earth, we will marvel at the grace of Christ. What else can't be taken from us? Well, death cannot take away our enjoyment of life. When I ask believers what they think won't be there after they die, one of the common answers is they say, well, I understand that time will be no more. I always respond by saying, why do you think that? Some who remember the King James Version of Revelation 10.6 will remember it says that there will be no more time. But that might not be the best translation. What really is expressed in that passage is that there will be no more delay in the fulfilling of God's promises. Others remember the old hymn, When the Roll is Called Up Yonder, which starts with the words, When the trumpet of the Lord shall sound, and time shall be no more. But please remember that those words are in a hymnal and are not in your Bible. Others have said, yes, but isn't God beyond time? Well, yes, He is. God created time and stands outside of and apart from all of His creation, even though He's actively engaged in every aspect of creation. But I'm not God and never will be. God is infinite. I'm not. I'm finite. God is omniscient, but I will never know all things, but will learn and grow and progress. How could I ever exhaust the riches of the knowledge of God? I won't. Only God is infinite. I'm a finite being who, by the grace of God, lives for eternity. Think about the evidence in Scripture. If you go back to the covenant God made with Noah, Genesis 8, says, While the earth remains, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall never cease. Now, I know some of you are saying that's a promise that God gave Noah, promising him that the earth will never be destroyed by a flood again. But we have no way of knowing whether that applies to the new earth. True, but it does provide us with a promise that God has given in his providential care of this earth. Let's see if we can find any of those markers in the earth to come. Let's start with a promise that God makes in the last chapter of Isaiah. Chapter 66, verses 22 to 23 says, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon, and from Sabbath to Sabbath— All flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. Now that statement seems to indicate a rhythm of life. New moons, weekly Sabbaths, set times for worship. Those words sound so very familiar, don't they? Consider the evidence from the end of Revelation. Revelation 22 verses 1 to 2 says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God, and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. I want us to notice some of the features of that description of the life to come. First, please notice the spatial dimensions. Water is flowing from the throne. It flows in the middle of the street. Notice also the variety, even variety of food available. But notice the reference to months. Indeed, 12 months are mentioned, a marking of time very much the way we do today. That would give the impression of seasons and years as the tree in the center of the city has seasons in which a different fruit is in season every single month. That begins to sound very much like the promise with Noah that the seasons and years will not cease. If you want further examples of time in heaven, we might look at Revelation 8, verse 1, where there is silence in heaven, and then we're told the length of time, about a half an hour. Or consider Revelation 7, 15, where we're told that the saints who come out of the great tribulation, we are told that they will serve God day and night. Now, a careful Bible reader might object here. After all, Revelation 21 verse 25 says, There will never be night in the new Jerusalem. But, and this is fascinating, the city itself has no need for the sun to shine on it, for it is the expression of the brightness and glory of God. It is forever lit. But we have no such description of the rest of God's created order. Now, without going into endless speculation of whether we will experience the rhythms of sleep and wake, the Bible does speak of the rhythm of seasons and even of weekly celebrations of stopping everything in order that we might worship. See, what I want to have us picture is a world in which we lose nothing of what brought us joy here. What do you think you're going to miss of this sin-cursed earth that we presently live in? A cup of coffee in the morning, the sensation of the sun shining on your face, a hug and a smile from an old dear friend, curling up by the fire with a book in your hand, hiking through the mountains and breathing in the fresh, clean, cold air. How about love and friendship and, and long conversations? How about an evening of study of Scripture and the Word of God? coming to the house of worship and bowing in reverence or singing for joy to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. How about other things? Like the plans you've always had to write a book or to build a structure or to complete a project. What exactly do you think you will lose at death if you're a believer and do all things to the glory of God? See, here's the amazing news. You will lose nothing. And when we come back, I want to take this one step further. I want us to imagine what indeed we will lose because in that also we'll come to terms with what heaven and earth are actually like.
0: When we think about it, most of us probably have hesitation about heaven because we're concerned with all we might miss out on right here. No wonder we often want to hold on to our earthly lives because we either fear or don't know what's on the other side. But from the beginning of today's message, we're seeing some of the holes in our thinking. In fact, something far greater awaits for us in heaven. This ought to radically transform our attitudes as believers. But what will be missing in eternity? After the break, Dr. Neufeld returns to answer that question as we conclude our series on heaven. It's happening. After a two-year break, Back to the Bible Canada is inviting you to join us February 2018 for a Celebration Caribbean Cruise, one week of cruising pristine waters, visiting beautiful island vistas, and most importantly, joining the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team, including Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Phil Calloway, special musical guests, and new friends from coast to coast in a time of reflection, refreshment, worship, and fellowship with God's people. For cruise and registration information, call us at 1 800 663 2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca. And an important reminder to all of our Back to the Bible Canada listeners no ministry funds are used to facilitate vacation events. The entire cost of the event is met exclusively by those who participate.
1: thinking about a well-known quote by C.S. Lewis taken from his book entitled The Weight of Glory. It would seem, said Lewis, that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Indeed, I think we are. Weeping that we will lose this world is like the child who weeps incessantly that he is taken from a muddy backyard sandbox to go to the wonder of a warm ocean stretch of white sand and stunning vistas. Why is it that believers fear death so much? Why have I stood at the dying bedside of believers who have told me that they really didn't want to die at all? Oh, how desperately they wanted to live. And why is it that believers sometimes sorrow at how horrible it was that a loved one in Christ is no more, and then they even shake their fists at God, wondering why it is that he would allow that person to die. I think I know the answer to this phenomenon. We know so little of heaven, and even what we think we know, we're often wrong. We have allowed popular images of heaven to overshadow the revelation from God's inerrant word. Deeply, we believe that those who have died in Christ have had something significant taken from them rather than have rejoiced that nothing of significance has been lost, but that something of great significance has been gained. But in order to illustrate this, let me help us gain a sense of what is lost at death. Remember, I said I wanted to divide this address into two. First, to remember what death cannot take away from a believer, and then secondly, to consider what death does take from a believer. Before I give some of the more easy answers, let me tackle the toughest question of all. You know, years ago, my wife wrote a letter to a fellow colleague at work. We were moving, and Kathy knew that she would never see her colleague and friend again. The woman was not a believer, but Kathy had spoken to her in the past of Christ and His amazing grace. Kathy's last letter to this woman referred to Christ's promise for His elect in heaven. Revelation 21 verse 4 promises, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You know, in her letter to her colleague, Kathy told her that if she, her friend, wasn't there with her in heaven, Kathy would be heartbroken, and Christ would have to wipe the tears of sorrow from her eyes, for she would need solace from such pain in the arms of her Redeemer. I've spoken with parents who have told me that they cannot imagine any greater pain than to arrive in glory and find a child missing. And for some of us, the idea of going to heaven without the assurance that those whom we have loved have not made peace with God is almost more than we can bear. What comfort can I give those of you who identify with that? Well, what I'm about to say will have to take some time to settle in, and, and you might feel angry with me for what I say, but I plead with you to hear me out. The thing about heaven that excites me more than anything else is that finally and ultimately— I will love what God loves, and I will also be overwhelmed that all of God's ways and his deeds are vindicated in the end. We will not look at those who have been eternally damned and wonder how God could have allowed such a thing to happen. We will look carefully into the matters of grace and of justice and marvel that all of God's ways are right and good, and we will love his ways. I want you to listen carefully to the words of Scripture in 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 9 to 10. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might, when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. You know, it seemed that God's perfect justice, even in the damnation of the wicked, is the cause for the saints to overflow with praise, wonder, amazement, and overwhelming love for a God who does all things for his glory and the greatness of his name, as he expresses that in the rightful judgment of the damned. This is not to say that we're calloused in heaven. I'm reminded of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, knowing that his ride into that city would, in the end, leave not one stone on another, because they rejected the day of his visitation. And as he rides into Jerusalem, he weeps. But weeping and compassion in Jesus never ends up in lazy sentimentalism, for he would have glorified God above all other things. And when we see Jesus in heaven, we will love Above all other things, the outpouring of God's glory, and marvel that in all of his attributes, even in the great damnation that will come upon many, we will see the glory and the greatness and the power and the loveliness of all that he does. And we will long for no greater thing in all eternity than that the holiness of God would shine in full splendor. All relationships in heaven will center on this glory and because our longing to enter ever more deeply into the splendor of the character and the deeds of heaven, we will be overwhelmed and joyful, and nothing will steal our joy. Revelation 18 and verse 19, the saints before the throne sing with joy because according to Revelation 19 verse 2, for his judgments are just and true, even when he condemns the unredeemed. That might answer some of our questions as difficult as it is for us to hear it. But knowing that there lies before all of us the, the great realities of heaven and hell should make us pray more fervently here, even fasting before God for the salvation of the lost and boldly witness to the saving message of Jesus. But above all, let's not let lesser views of the glory of God twist the truths that there lies before every single human being, heaven or hell. Let's let the biblical witness speak. And let us be content that in heaven I will have no greater joy than to know him who is altogether glorious and altogether lovely. What else? What else might I miss in heaven? The rest of the answers I give I think are easy to address. Will I miss marriage? I think not. I think that I will experience intimacy and even pleasure at a level in which marriage like that which is experienced on this earth was but a poor reflection of that which is altogether lovely. I also know that I will not miss the lesser motives I had in this life that drove me forward. I will not miss sin or pain or debt or envy or loneliness and the constant rebellion against the plans of God. And I will certainly not miss death or pain or mourning or weeping. In short, I will remember all things clearly and miss nothing. For I will forever know that I have come from the land of shadows into the world of light and color and vibrancy and righteousness. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55, the Apostle Paul asks a question. We are now in a position to consider the answer and to give a deeply informed answer. Where, O death, he asks, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? You know, if you're facing your own death, dear saint, do not weep, but rejoice, for you will soon be translated into glory, and the life you have always wanted will be yours. And if you're grieving over the loss of a loved one, a parent, a child, a brother, a sister, friend, a colleague who died in the arms of our loving Savior, weep no more, For their lot is better than yours by far, says the great Apostle Paul. How important it is to live in the light of hope, to reject the despair of this world, to grasp firmly to the promises of God, and to lift up our head, for our redemption is drawing nigh. Look at each passing year and say in confidence, my very best days are drawing near. I am losing nothing of value, and I am gaining everything. This is my inheritance in Christ Jesus. Heavenly Father, I pray especially for those who believe, who have a fear of death. Father, take it away. And for those who do not yet believe, help them to see the vision of what you have prepared for all those who love you. And give them, Heavenly Father, a heart that would love you and entrust their souls into your eternal future. In the name of Christ, our risen Lord, and because of the hope that you
0: have spread abroad, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. John, thanks so much for this series. Uh, Another great series, I think, that will enlighten so many people and give them great hope for tomorrow. But let me ask you again, one, one last question for this series. What might be the three things that you want people most specifically to go away with? I think the first would have to be love God, get to know Him,
1: anticipate being in His presence. I mean, the second thing I'd like to say is, I mean, look to the resurrection of Jesus and recognize that nothing will be lost. That's the very message that I've given today. Nothing will be lost in glory. Your your humanity is not lost, and indeed, nothing that you were created for is ever lost. So, You don't have to think about loss when you think about heaven. You only need to think about gain. I guess the final thing is that God has created us to be fully alive in every sense of the word. Uh, We are alive with purpose, alive unto him, alive in relationships that we have. I mean, all of these things, I think, uh, are what God has created us for. And since this is what God has created us for, this
0: is what we will ultimately be. Well, it's been a great time. It's been a great message. It's been a great series, and I want to mention again, and John, if you can again, just mention the Randy Elcorn booklet that's available to people. Yeah, we're offering
1: a a shortened version of what El, Randy Elcorn has written, and uh, it's his uh, shortened version on heaven, and it will allow a person a very quick thumbnail sketch of what heaven is all about, and I would commend it to you. I think it's well worth the read, and it might also whet your appetite
0: to read his longer book on heaven, which I would also commend to you. Thanks so much, John. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. At Back to the Bible Canada, we believe we share a special relationship with our friends and listeners across the country. A relationship characterized by a common purpose, a fellowship in the gospel. This relationship, this partnership impacts the lives of real people journeying through life's challenges, disappointments, and struggles. So when we partner in prayer or offer a financial gift, we make a tangible impact. So may I ask you to consider a special financial gift this month? Would you help us share critical biblical insight on living out God-honoring marriages and relationships? Your gift not only supports the airing of our Bible teaching programs, but allows us to make resources like Celebration of Marriage available free on CD for anyone who asks. Help us impact, sustain and restore relationships, marriages and otherwise. Ask for your free copy of Celebration of Marriage for yourself or to share with someone who might be encouraged. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit online at backtothebible.ca.